0: I invite you this morning to turn to the gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, Matthew 21. And today we examine verses 33 through 46, this being the second in a trilogy of parables that Jesus is preaching, where he graphically exposes something that we have all experienced and that we constantly experience And that is the willful, deliberate rejection of God's provision for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus I've entitled my sermon to you this morning, The Pattern and Price of Rejecting Jesus. Follow along, beginning in verse 23 of Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him. To be a prophet. Last week, we looked at the first parable of this trilogy, the parable of the two sons. And now here we have another parable of a landowner where, again, Jesus exposes the religious elite of apostate Judaism. We see here the pattern and the price for rejecting Jesus As we look at this text, we will see a logical sequence of disbelief on the part of the religious vine growers. And might I add on the part of everybody, everyone who denies Christ as savior and Lord. In order to help you see this, I've divided this text into three very simple parts. First, we will see in this pattern of rejection that people are, number one, driven by self-interest Secondly, they are deceived by self-righteousness. And thirdly, they are damned by self-justification. As you can tell, selfishness is the hallmark of human depravity. Well, the meaning of the parable is quite simple. As we look at it, we see that the landowner refers to God, the one who has gone to great lengths to prepare his vineyard to be fruitful. And of course, the vineyard is the covenant people Israel. The concept of the vineyard was a common Old Testament symbol to describe God's covenant people, but in a broader sense, it refers to the kingdom of God in general, including the church age in which we live. Now, it was common for landowners in that day to lease portions of their vineyard to various caretakers. Here they're called vine growers. And these people would then tend the vineyard, and at the appropriate time of the harvest, they would pay back a portion, a certain percentage, to the landowner. And of course, the vine growers here in this text refers to the chief priests and the elders, the religious elite of apostate Israel, those that are greedy and treacherous and brutal. And as we look at one of the chief characteristics of the pattern of rejection, we see again that first and foremost, people are driven by self-interest. They're not faithful to the landowner. And as we think about the chief priests, the Pharisees and the scribes, we know, as we have studied these texts, that they were in it for the money they were. All false teachers. And this is why, by the way, Jesus cleansed the temple. They had an agenda, a self-interest that they were pursuing. And I might add that like all religious hypocrites that are in leadership, all of them are basically fundamentally not men of God, not men that are called and gifted to be the spokesman of God, but rather they are entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs. They are politicians. They are power brokers. They're not faithful servants of God. And in this parable, the vine growers obviously violated the landowners trust. They had their own agenda. So what did they do? They killed the landowner's servants when they came to receive their percentage for the landowner. And of course, this is a reference to what The Jewish elite had done all through the Old Testament. They killed the prophets of God. As you study the prophets of God, you will see in the Old Testament that most of them died as martyrs. You see, false teachers hate the truth. Because it exposes them. And I might add, it ruins their business. And it undermines their control with the people. So knowing the savagery. Of the vine growers, the landowner then sends his own son to set things right. And of course, this would be a reference to God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is now standing before these brutal and vicious vine growers. And as we look at the text, we see that with full knowledge of who he was as the son, they decide to kill him. And of course, this is precisely what is about to happen just a few days later in the crucifixion of Christ. It's fascinating, by the way, in verse 39, we read, and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is a clear allusion to Jesus' crucifixion that occurred outside of the city of Jerusalem. Now. Some of you might be asking, what practical relevance does this parable have for those of us today living in the church age? Well, the answer is quite simple. The same apostasy of the first century exists today. Oh, it has different names and different faces. But in general, the same type of rejection of the son exists today with hypocritical religious leaders like the Jews of that day, many modern religious systems claim to be the only church. They claim to be the only way to the truth. Many of them even claim to worship Jesus as the son of God. And millions of people adhere to their rituals and their traditions. But ultimately, these leaders and many of the people are also driven by self-interest. You see, in order for the power brokers, the religious elite to maintain their power and their control of the people. What they have to do is invent some kind of a religious system of works righteousness, just like the apostate Jews. Where people will willfully reject Jesus and prefer rather their own works, or they will distort who Jesus is and ultimately deny his person and his work, for example, So that you will see how practical this is even today. There are religious people that would call themselves Christians that deny the Trinity, the triune Godhead. And if we read in Luke 12, for example, we see that it is absolutely essential to the gospel of Christ to believe in the Trinity. Because in Luke 12, Jesus warned, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he goes on to describe describe how that salvation is the work of the Trinity, something that they refuse to believe. Requiring sinners to acknowledge the work of the father who has been offended, who, as that that text says, is the one to fear, who has authority to cast into hell. You have to understand that God, the father, has been offended. And you also have to understand the son, because in Luke 12, it says that uh, we must confess Me, Jesus says, the son of man before men. Confess means to say what is true. And to say what is true about Jesus is to say that indeed he is the savior. He is the one that is the propitiation for our sins. Or in other words, the satisfaction of the father's wrath. He alone can satisfy God's justice. So you have to understand the father and the son. You also in that text are told that you're not to blaspheme the spirit which means to deny the revealer of the truth. The Holy Spirit of God is the writer of Scripture. You can blaspheme or deny the Father, even the Son. We've all done that. But if you come along and blaspheme the Spirit, in other words, ignore Him, reject Him, deny Him, who is the only source of truth, friends, there's no other way to the truth. And so it's for that reason that is called the unforgivable sin. So, all false religions have their spin on the truth, and many people blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus made it clear that no one comes to the Father but by the Son, and no one comes to the Son but by the Spirit. These are essential truths that are denied by many people who would therefore fall into this same category of the religious elite, these vine growers. For example, the Oneness Pentecostals deny the Trinity. The Word of Faith movement, uh, the, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, interestingly enough, denies the Trinity. Well, there are other quasi Christian systems that distort the person and the work of Jesus, denying the authority and infallibility of His Word. This is commonplace in liberal denominations. I get emails all the time from our listeners around the world who are so frustrated. Being a part of uh, I got some of this last week from the Methodist Church, from the Lutheran Church and from the Episcopal Church. And these churches will basically teach and certainly not all of them, but many of them, if not most of them, that God, whoever he or she is, is really nothing more than the force of love and all faiths lead to heaven and those types of things. In fact, Jesus was terribly distorted in the recent film, The Passion of the Christ. I've critiqued that before, and I won't get into that again. But as a result of that, what we have now seen in our culture is that it's kind of cool to talk about Jesus, not as Savior and Lord, but as buddy. In fact, after the film, Jesus suddenly became fashionable. And you began to see people wearing the uh, Jesus is my homeboy T-shirts. Homeboy being gang slang for uh, my friend, my trusted companion. You begin seeing celebrities wearing these things like Pamela Anderson and, and Madonna. By the way, you can also now purchase Mary is my homegirl. And my point is with this, you see religious elite allowing the gospel of Christ to get so distorted that people have no idea who Jesus really is. In fact, Many revivals of various old films were came out after that particular film, including Jesus Christ Superstar and numerous television specials. You'll recall ABC had uh, the Judas um, series on there, and then you had the In Search of the Real Jesus and all of these things. And you even had, uh, after the Passion of the Christ, a dramatic rise in Christian music sales. I read an article by... Adam Graham, it was uh, actually in the Detroit News, and he entitled it, What a Trend We Have in Jesus. And he perceptively noted that the current fashionableness of Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and other Jesus paraphernalia is all about, quote, entertainment, not true devotion to Christ. I might change that a little bit. It's all about deception, not true devotion to Christ. We have other modern day vine dressers, vine dressers that have widened the gate of salvation to include anybody that makes any kind of profession, no matter how shallow or how distorted it is. And inevitably, we see people coming to Christ as blesser, not as savior. We see this in the theological ebonics of the seeker sensitive movement that is sweeping the nation. We've seen it in. The, as I call it, the smiley face Jesus of the purpose driven life, this Jesus who exists to make us happy rather than holy. We see it in the prosperity theology movement, the word of faith movement and so on. People that see man as more deprived than depraved. And Jesus, therefore, is reduced to some kind of a cosmic genie that you learn how to manipulate so that he will provide for you and perform some kind of a personal miracle. And, of course, the result of this now has flowed into this new movement of the emergent church. A group of people now, many churches around the nation that deny all of the essential doctrines of historic Christianity. All of the doctrines are reduced in their language to nothing more than, quote, legal metaphors of faith. These people prefer, as one critic says, doubt and mystery over certainty and conviction. And of course, these folks know nothing of the real Jesus, indicative of the vine growers that Jesus is condemning in this parable. Others have a perverted gospel, especially the faith plus works groups of people, a damning counterfeit that nullifies grace that ultimately denies the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. We see this in Roman Catholicism. You see it in Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Many would even add the Seventh-day Adventists in that group and other fringe groups of Christianity. John MacArthur has said it well. There's only two kinds of religion. There is the religion of human achievement, where you add to your faith, your own works in order to be saved. And the other religion is the true religion of divine accomplishment requiring faith alone. Resulting in works. Bottom line, friends, all false religions are driven ultimately by self-interest, not a passion for God and his glory. Well, as we look at this pattern, we see that these folks were not only driven by self-interest, but secondly, they were deceived by self-righteousness. You see, the Jews had concocted. Hundreds of ridiculous rules and regulations beyond the law of Moses we've gone over some of them before i 'll not take time today. You can read uh, some of them, for example in in the in the Talmud, which was the uh, the, the repository of the oral law. You see, they understood that god 's law was so impossible to obey, and of course God did that for a purpose to drive us to his mercy and to drive us for the one or to the one who could be the righteousness of God for us. But since God's law was so impossible to obey, they had to reinterpret it and add some different rules and loopholes so that we could obey these things and then have the perception of being righteous before God. So when you would adhere to the rules that they gave you, you were considered righteous. Well, we see the same kind of vine growers today especially in the Roman Catholic Church. Not only are they driven by self-interest, but but they're deceived by self-righteousness. That they are driven by self-interest is well documented. We've seen in Roman Catholicism the church preying upon poor people, ignorant people, the selling of indulgences, selling of special privileges, I've studying some of it this last week. Some of these things still go on around the world. The Roman Catholic Church today is the greatest landowner in the world. They build, as you know, lavish cathedrals and continue to amass fabulous wealth through their distortion of the gospel of Christ. And if I can digress for a moment, because this has come up with some of our listeners and even some folks here in the church, this issue of Roman Catholicism. May I say that any system that denies the finished work of Christ on the cross as the sole means of salvation from sin must, therefore, invent a counterfeit gospel. And this is what Roman Catholicism has done. Frankly, Roman Catholicism is nothing more than repackaged Pharisaism with all of its traditions and rituals and, and, and robes and funny little hats and all of the paraphernalia And the grand spectacles that they have a counterfeit system insisting that divine grace is dispensed through various meritorious sacraments. For example, they have invented this thing of infant baptism where they believe that that washes away original sin. They have, of course, the mass uh, where they sacrifice Christ over and over again, thousands and thousands of times every week around the world. They've also invented a mechanical means of confessing your sin where you go into a confessional booth and you confess your sin to a mere man. And they see that as the basis now of divine forgiveness, a blasphemy beyond beyond words. They have invented rosary beads and rituals and things like that that are supposedly instrumental in the exoneration from from sin and from judgment. And, of course, if you sin too much, they have a nice provision there. You can offer various forms of penance to pay for your sins yourself, to personally atone for your sins, because after all, what Jesus did on the cross wasn't sufficient. And if it gets too bad, of course, you have purgatory that you can go to where you're going to be for an unknown amount of time and your sins can be purged so you can finally make it into heaven. Roman Catholicism with their worship of Mary, praying to Mary and other saints as if Mary has ever heard a prayer or some other saint. And, of course, they've developed an an intricate hierarchy of priests and the papacy and so on. But, folks, central to their heresy that, again, is indicative of apostate Judaism that we're looking at here in the text. Central to their heresy is that salvation is not by faith alone. That justification is a lifelong process. It is not imputed, but it is infused over time. You see, to them, we are not declared righteousness by a holy God through the righteousness of Christ at the time of salvation, but rather we become righteous over time through good works. And again, if you don't earn enough favor with God, there's always purgatory. That's kind of the second chance where you can have your sins purged. Now, friends, I tell you, this is the very opposite of the gospel of Christ. Scripture teaches that we are justified by the grace of God through faith alone. In Romans 4, 5, the Apostle Paul says to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. You see, whenever you add ritual requirements to faith as instruments of of justification, you find yourself in the same trap of the Galatians. This was the essence of the Galatian heresy. And the strongest words of condemnation in all of the New Testament are directed at this very kind of teaching we read in Galatians 1.8. But even though we or an angel, Paul says, even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Friends, any system that takes faith and adds works to it, nullifies grace, don't you see? In Romans 3.28, we read, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In Galatians 2.16, man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. By the works of the law, it goes on to say, shall no flesh be justified. It's real clear. Verse 21 of Galatians 2, "I do not nullify the grace of God," Paul says. "For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly." You see, friends, this is not some obscure issue, hidden in some ambiguous text, or implied in some nuance of theology. This is crystal clear. Paul exposed this error in Romans 9:31. Speaking again of Israel, he says, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law, at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written in any quotes, Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, referring to Jesus, and he who believes in him, will not be disappointed. He then continues in Romans 10, beginning in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, referring to Israel, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. You see, like the many Jews of Jesus' day, Many religious people today have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a rigid legalistic system. In fact, they will be fiercely opposed to any other religious system. You can see this, for example, in Islam. But their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. It's not based on the truth. They fail to understand that the righteousness of God requires that that, that he requires comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness imputed to us, that is justification where we are declared righteous by a holy God when we place our faith in the righteousness of Christ. And then as a result of that, the works come. Our faith doesn't come because of that. Of course, where there is no spiritual life, like in apostate Judaism and Roman Catholicism, ritual and superstition begins to take over. That's why we're constantly reading in newspapers about, you know, somebody seeing Jesus in a tortilla or some apparition of of Mary in a in a picture window or whatever. But friends, the great tragedy of all of this. Something that is a constant source of frustration to me and many other pastors, is to see other evangelicals who are blinded to the doctrine of saving faith and somehow blinded, I guess, by their their sentimental sentimental passion for, for unity within the, quote, church. To see them sacrificing truth on the altar of tolerance Wanting always to have all of these competing positions come together as one big whole. But friends, we see this push for ecumenism all the time in all kinds of of ecumenical movements. I spoke Wednesday night on how we see it continuing to be at the forefront of promise keepers. We see it in Bible study fellowship. You see it in the big vineyard movement. Unfortunately, you see it gaining momentum even with Campus Crusade for Christ. And you certainly see it in the Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement, ECT it's called, which is designed to somehow unite the longtime enemies of Protestantism and Catholicism by finding, quote, a common ground to promote the cause of Christ. But friends, the Christ they promote, now catch this, is not the Christ of the Bible, but rather a Christ that we can believe in and then add with what He has done our own works and thus become deceived by our own self-righteousness. One of ECT's dominant advocates, Chuck Colson, is constantly preaching the importance of evangelicals, quote, engaging contemporary culture. This is the idea with many people, evangelicals. You know, we've got to engage the culture. That's a big theme. Phil Johnson has accurately stated in regards to this, and I quote, engaging the culture is Colson's pet euphemism for ecumenical political activism. He has been campaigning for years to persuade evangelicals to tone down or set aside what makes us evangelical because he wants us to join hands in the public arena with an interfaith posse of political co And in the parentheses, he includes devout Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jews and other religious traditionalists. And they're doing this, he goes on to say, to lobby for reforming society's values through legislation End quote. And, of course, friends, the the linchpin in this whole idea of engaging the culture is to downplay and to distort the doctrine of sole fide. And we see that. Where is it? Right here on the wall. Faith alone. These five solas, millions of people in the Reformation died because of these doctrines. And now we're supposed to just kind of throw it all aside. Sola fide, salvation by faith alone. Again, folks, this was the very essence of the Protestant Reformation. Phil Johnson goes on to say, quote, The more co-belligerents Coulson embraces, the bigger the problem becomes. As his circle of allies grows broader, the movement becomes less and less tolerant of gospel distinctives. You simply cannot, he says, solicit the support and partnership of, for example, Jewish leaders... In a moral crusade, if you are clearly and forcefully declaring the exclusivity of Christ, Colson's broad ecumenism is simply incompatible with the politically incorrect, but biblically, but biblical and essential truth that explicit faith in Christ is the only way to salvation in quote, beloved, whenever we affirm any system of faith plus works, and we call people that believe these things Christian, whether they're Roman Catholics or Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, we are perpetuating a damning error. Now, please hear this. I'm passionate about this because this is the very type of thing that Jesus was so passionate about, even in this parable. And, of course, this is aggravated even more when we ally ourselves with all people of faith, including Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, to somehow engage the culture. Beloved, excuse me, but I I don't see a biblical mandate to engage the culture. I see a mandate to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, to make disciples of all men. Well, these are some of the dominant examples of modern vine growers that would, in many ways, parallel apostate Israel that Jesus is condemning here in this text. I want you to see that there are far broader ramifications here. Indeed, they're driven by self-interest. Secondly, they're deceived by self-righteousness. But it's interesting that Jesus once again outwits his antagonists here in verses 40 through 41. He gets them to condemn their brutal treachery with their own mouths. Notice what he says. Therefore, when the, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, can't you imagine the, 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 the self-righteous religious elite now kind of pumping out their chest a little bit and grabbing a hold of their lapels on the robes? And they said to him, well, it's kind of like, boy, we're going to answer this one. We know exactly what needs to happen here. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Well, little did they realize that they had just condemned themselves with their own mouths. Jesus wanted them to understand this perfectly well. So in verse 42, he says, did you never read the read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, here Jesus is quoting a messianic psalm in Psalm 118, actually verses 22 and 23, a psalm that points to the reality of his messiahship. You see, like the cornerstone of a building whose perfect symmetry and and strength is crucial for the construction and the stability of a building. So, too, the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. In fact, at Pentecost, later on, Peter would later proclaim to these very same murderers, now after the crucifixion, in Acts 4.10, He would say, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And he goes on to say, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You see, indeed, the Jews had inspected this cornerstone. They saw all of his miracles. They were awestruck by his teaching. But he didn't measure up to their agenda, to their selfish needs, because, again, they wanted to be delivered from Rome, not from sin, so that they could pursue their own self-righteous agendas. Like so many people today. They wanted a blesser to make them happy, not a savior to make them holy. The same today is prevalent in so many movements. The purpose driven life movement in particular. One where people pursue Jesus so that they can be more successful, so they can have more prosperity, so that they can feel more fulfilled. Because after all, the attitude is Jesus exists for me, not I exist for him. Life is all about me and my needs, not God and his glory. And so when people see the real Jesus, they don't want anything to do with that cornerstone. They will reject that. In his first epistle, Peter said, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom, they were also appointed. First Peter two verses six through eight. And Paul gives those who are united to Christ Jesus through faith alone a great reason to rejoice as we read his words of encouragement to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians two nineteen, Here's what he said. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the what? The cornerstone. So Jesus exposes this. Very common pattern of rejection in these religious antagonists, a pattern that is all too widespread today. People, first of all, that are driven by self-interest, using some kind of a counterfeit religious system to meet their own personal agenda, usually to somehow cash in on God, to be able to love the world and live in the world and to do all you want and then kind of have God over here that's going to help you enjoy it all. And then secondly, those that inevitably buy into some satanically inspired religion that leaves them deceived by their own self-righteousness. People that are convinced that by their works, by their rituals, by some ceremony, that they are doing things that are meritorious before God and thus impressing Him and obligating Him to somehow grant them mercy And folks, whenever that happens, those people minimize the glorious reality of what Christ did on the cross on our behalf and makes His work insufficient and partially unnecessary. And as a result of this, they are, of course, damned by their own self-justification. And we see this thirdly. You see, all false religions... Whatever form of works righteousness they promote have an uncanny ability to blind the faithful followers to the deception that they embrace. You know, whether it's, it's, it's Islam or or Judaism, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, whatever it is, they always have gurus kind of in the leadership position indicative of these vine growers that we see here. That will go to any length to concoct some kind of a system that attempts to guarantee salvation as long as you just do what you're told. And the result is self-justification. And still today, we see this happening. And folks, herein is the inconceivable power of hypocrisy. Like lemmings, people run over The cliff of some religious heresy to an eternal death. Millions of self-justified fools running headlong into the wrath of God. Who alone can justify the sinner? So here Jesus pronounces judgment on those who refuse to be justified through faith in Christ alone. Preferring instead to justify themselves through some kind of a man-made religion. So in verses thirty four or forty three and forty four, we read the Lord's words. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. By the way, the word nation is ethnos. It simply means people. A reference here to the church of which Christ is the cornerstone, the church, which is the only True vine that is able to produce the fruit of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus said in John 15, five, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And later, first Peter or Peter would say in first Peter two nine, as he talks about the church, he refers to the church as a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Again, a holy nation, a people set apart. People that are divinely separated from the world to have an intimate relationship with him. Set apart from sin unto God. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 44, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And folks, herein is the eternal tragedy of those who reject Jesus and fall upon him. And of course, this is a reference to the Jews now who are about to fall on this stone, the cornerstone in the crucifixion. This is the price of rejection that he is speaking about here On whomever it falls, referring to Jesus, he will scatter them like dust. And again, the Jews fell on that stone. They crucified the Lord. But I might add that all who refuse to repent. Please hear this. All who refuse to repent and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will ultimately be scattered like dust. A way of describing Eternal damnation. So may I challenge everyone who is within the sound of my voice. All of you who have ears to hear and eyes to see. May I challenge you to heed the searchlight of your own conscience. That searchlight that can look into the secret caverns of your heart. And as you peer into those secret places in your heart. Those places that only you can see. And God can see. I would encourage you to look into your imagination and gaze intently into those hidden tunnels and ask yourself. Am I being driven by my own self-interest in whatever religious pursuit that I have? Have I been deceived by my own self-righteousness? Because after all, I've done some kind of a religious thing once upon a time in my life. But in reality, you know that you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not serving him. Because if this is true of you, you will also be damned by your self justification. So, friends, if indeed these things. Grip your heart, these things are indicative of the reality of your life, don't be like the religious hypocrites who responded to divine exposure with with violent resentment, but rather rejoice in a merciful God who would come along and offer you forgiveness of sin, exposing your sin so you could see the heinousness of it, but at the same time offering you you grace and mercy. So I plead with you as a minister of the Gospel, repent, repent, Before it's too late. Let's pray together. Father, as we ponder these incredible truths, we recognize again that we have been saved by grace alone through faith alone. And we rejoice in the righteousness that is ours, not through our own works, but through the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I pray that you will speak to any heart. That remains rebellious to the truth of your saving grace. And I pray that today will be the day that they confess their sin, that they give up all of their efforts and rest solely on that finished work of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will save them and that today will be the wonderful day that they can experience the miracle of salvation, the miracle of the new birth. Lord, we commit this to you. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org. Or call 615-746-0113.